when you sell a business, there's all these different ways to calculate value. But the real calculation is what you're worth to somebody else. Welcome to the Build My Online Store podcast, where we discuss everything and anything about running an online store. If you like the podcast, sign up for the mailing list to get news and updates at buildmyonlinestore.com. And now, here's your host, Terry Lynn. Welcome to episode 62 of the Build My Online Store podcast. I'm your host, Terry, and this week I've got Joe Palco, Chief Marketing Officer at 3D Cart, where we're going to talk about his 20 years of experience in the e-commerce industry. And so we'll hear about how Joe started his first store in 1994, even before Amazon was online, uh, how Joe approached a buyer and sold the business in 2007, and what his biggest advice is for merchants that are starting a store now. Because since now he works at 3D Cart, he has a very unique perspective, both as a store owner and as a service provider. All right, and before we start this episode, a couple blog posts I want to highlight to you guys. Uh, Foolish Adventure, uh, episode 162, about achieving authenticity with Andy Gray. Uh, so our friend Tim Conley and also Andy Gray is a friend of mine. Uh, they had an episode about you know just really living life the way you want to. And it's kind of a little uh, mindset episode. I think really they go pretty deep on kind of what you know entrepreneurship really is about. Uh, is this really the path? Well, you know, if you're going down this path, uh, what do you want to do with your life eventually? And if that's not aligned with you, uh, you know, what to do about it and kind of the implications it has uh, when it's out of alignment. And another blog post, Shopify launches their offline uh, point of sale system. So this is a pretty big game changer. The traditional model was e-commerce. Uh, when you sell stuff on an online store, your inventory is managed elsewhere, kind of within the platform. And if you had uh, offline bricks and mortars operations, it was really hard to link those together. And so Shopify is the first one to actually link them through the same system. So you can actually start an online store and go bricks and mortars. Or if you're bricks and mortars you want to go online you can maybe change the system and everything will be integrated in the same backend so pretty big game changer and it's the first uh, shopping cart to offer this so it'll be interesting to see how the other guys like big commerce or volusion or maybe even magento uh, kind of get into this game too because i think that's really the last mile where that's kind of in the future where you're tying uh, offline commerce and online commerce into one really integrated experience so definitely check that post out oh with that being said kind of some updates and news from my side uh, i'm currently in bali indonesia now uh, just for a month as you probably listened to the last episode uh, i just left my job so i'm taking some time away to focus uh, away from the environment and kind of just to reset uh, everything around me so i think one thing i noticed is that once i left the job you know i was just moping around the house for two or three days and kind of still stuck in the old mindsets of the routines that you do when you wake up you know you have breakfast you change clothes and i was like okay i just need to change something on and you know kind of moved here for a bit and so uh, if you've never been here before a very cool place a lot of the architecture is kind of very interesting so like the facebook page i'll uh, post some pictures there of kind of the food here and kind of what i see here so in the meantime i'm still accessible here but the internet's kind of very slow so uh, if you have any questions Questions, comments, uh, shoot it to me over at Terry at BillMyOnlineStore.com. And with that being said, let's just get into this episode. All right, 
Welcome to the show, everyone.、Uh, today I've got Joe Palco from 3D Cart, Chief Marketing Officer. And before we get into this, Joe,、uh, you know, real quick, who are you and what do you do?、Uh, my name is Joe Palco. I currently am the Chief Marketing Officer for 3D Cart Shopping Cart Software in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I have a long history. I started the Ferret Store and, and my e commerce business with my co founder. Scott San Filippo back in 1994. Wow, that's that's <laughs> that's like it's like a dinosaur age almost. <laughs> we were we were actually online prior to Amazon, and、um, the Ferret Store, which I'm sure we'll get into, is a pretty fascinating story how how I became successful in e-commerce. I went on to found a company and co-found a company in 2001 called Solid Cactus. Um, which was a web services,、uh, e-commerce, design,、um, social media, basically every, a call center, everything a merchant would need to be successful. And I basically co-founded that on you know because what I had learned from 1994 to 2000, the e-commerce was starting to get popular around 2000, right? So I thought, well, this is a great business opportunity. I'll leave the Ferret Store and start up something that I can use that you know I taught. I started to teach people how I became successful, basically, and started a company around it.、Um, I had almost 200 employees before I sold that to Web.com Group, which is another publicly traded company. So, actually, the Dr. Foster's and Smith is private, but it's actually a really large company. So that's pretty much the short version. So basically, throughout the whole value chain, you've had a role. From like the front end to the back end. Yeah, I live the entire life cycle of an e-commerce merchant. <laughs> I see. <laughs> all right, all right. So let's go back to the ferret store a little bit. So, you know, 1994 ferret owners. Like, where do you even find these customers when you had this idea? See, this is this is what's funny about the whole thing. When we started the ferret store, we were in college and we liked ferrets. And there used to be,、uh, there still is actually ferret shows that are just like. Dog and cat shows. So and and rabbit owners do the same thing. So basically, they have shows where they give awards for the best ferret, the best acting ferret, the fuzziest ferret. You know, so all that stuff. So we used to go to the shows and we would vend at them. So we sold merchandise at the shows. Scott worked for an internet services provider at the time. So websites were just starting to, you know, come online because people were starting to get internet access. One day when he was at work, he built、um, he built a website with product on it and figured out because shopping carts at this time really didn't exist. But there were scripts that they could use to do add to cart and everything. There was no security or anything online, so no SSL or anything back then. <laughs> no, no. Actually, I can I can remember our. I am almost remembering it. Like our URL used to be www.epics.net/tildascottes. <laughs> <laughs> It's like a geocities.com/username. <laughs> kind of, yeah. He put the whole catalog online. And then we started promoting the website at the shows. The people who would buy from us at the shows were ordering online, and you know they would place their order online, and then we'd get a, a message, and then we would call them for their credit card number, and then we would process the orders. You know, the internet started to develop, and shopping carts did start to form. And domain names back then used to cost,、oh, I don't know, three hundred some dollars for a domain name. So at the time that was too rich for us, you know. But the, the prices started coming down, and I'd say in 1996 was when we actually launched theferretstore.com. What's kind of fun is you could、um, did you ever play with that site Wayback Machine? It's like archive.org. Yeah, you can. I mean, you can go back and look at all the different versions of 
of the ferretstore.com. And we also use the domain ferretstore.com. So somewhere in between, like we were using both. We became e-commerce merchants by accident. Yeah. <laughs> Just out of a college hobby. Yeah. Kind of silly thing. Huh? But, the, you know, the growth was unbelievable. Like I can remember our online sales in two, or, um, 1994 when we started, we had sold like $50,000 worth of merchandise online. And we were like, damn, this is like, because we really hoped that this would just be like a part-time job for us. And that we would go on and do our normal, you know, what we were going to college for. Then the second year, we did like 250000 in sales. And then like the third year, we did 500000 in sales. <laughs> so it, it kept doubling year over year. When we had sold it in 2007, we were actually kind of on a downtrend then. Anybody who's been in e-commerce for this long knows that the peak was probably somewhere around maybe like 2003 was when like the sales were phenomenal. We had no real competition. People were just starting to creep up. You know, interesting is there was no dropship model back then. Like people tried to build e-commerce businesses around dropshipping. The only way we were able to build it was to actually start warehousing the product because we were so new for our time. What was really fascinating was the manufacturers who made pet supplies, like in the pet business, you, there were distributors that distributed to pet stores and none of them would sell to us because we weren't a store. We went directly to the manufacturers and, you know, please sell to us. Like when we were in the, you know, selling in the fair shows and stuff, we were buying off of these, there were a couple that would sell to you without a business, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a, a really great margin. And we went to the manufacturers and they kind of like, not laughed at us, but they were like, look at these guys, they're young and so ambitious. We'll sell to them. But because they had never had a program for selling to people who were selling online, they treated us like a distributor. They didn't have like a wholesale pricing model. So they actually, what happened was we ended up with phenomenal margins because they were selling to us at the same price they were selling to distributors. And then you were going direct. Yeah. And, and we went direct, basically not, again, accidental, not knowing that, that this would turn out to build our business bigger. We just did it because we needed the product and you know, we figured they would mark it up another level or whatever, but they didn't. They treated us like a distributor because we were like new and exciting, right? But then when they saw our sales, say 2005-ish, we had the largest purchasing of ferret supplies in the whole segment. Like we out-purchased PetSmart, Petco, you know, all these big box chains. So they, of course, now the reason for that is not because we were some, you know, huge company, but it, it was that, you know, if you go to a PetSmart or a Petco or a Walmart, there's only going to be a four-foot section that has ferret supplies in it. They're not going to have 200 products. Where by then, you, if you Googled pet ferret supplies, you probably showed up. Well, that's what was really fun. I mean, that was the most fun part of my whole internet life was getting complaints from customers back in, say, 1999. People would search Alta Vista, you know, for ferret, and we would come up at every listing in the top 10 was us. People would be like, this is really unfair. Why Why are you everything in the internet, you know? Um, but we were the only people selling this stuff. So, <laughs> you know, it, it got less and less fun as like, you know, Google and Bing and MSN started to actually build better search engines. Because we were in it so long, I mean, right up till the very end, if you searched Ferret or Ferret Supplies, we were always number one. It didn't really hurt us. It's hard for merchants now to to really have that kind of success regardless of how great the product is. Because it sounds like back then you just put on a website and then basically you just start making sales. Right? Pretty much. 
the same <laughs> the same fundamentals are still true today. People who are really successful online, this is my opinion, of course, people who are going to be really successful online either have a niche product that nobody else is selling or they find some way to sell a commodity at the lowest possible price. Because that's pretty much when people go to the web now, they're either going for a deal or they're going to find something they can't find in retail. Back then, we kind of had the best of both worlds and it was a complete accident. So we were able to build up a a really great fan base because you know the internet started to evolve we started with a store then then we were one of the first people to put um, a forum online because that was all new right so we had a forum of like hundreds and hundreds of, of ferret so we had a really strong community so, so you guys niche down before even niching down was like popular right, right. yeah we, we did it <laughs> not even knowing that that's what we were doing yeah because most people when they think pet supplies online they think like oh dog supplies cat supplies no one thinks all the way down to like ferrets and right right and that's what actually was when we went to sell to to dr fosters and smith they were i believe at the time they were and still are the largest mail order cataloger in the country. They built their business on dog and cat. And every time, you know, they tried to do small animal, but they didn't have a small animal customer base. And it never made sense for them to try to build it. You know what I mean? It's a, it's such a, a niche segment that why would they really spend a lot of money trying to, you know, build a, a consumer base? And not just the money, it's also the time and the energy to grow that from scratch. Right. right. You're better off just paying a premium, kind of buying someone and just integrating it into your... Home model. Right. All right. So before you get there, you know, so you're doing like what more than five hundred thousand a year in sales, and you know, when did you guys decide that hey, you know, we want to get out of this business? Probably somewhere around two thousand five. We were doing about twelve million. Then we started on a downward trend. We did less in 2006 and less in 2007. And I can say it's probably true in any business that downsizing isn't fun. It takes the fun out of actually doing the business. We were starting to lose about 2 million a year. Now I knew that we would flatten, but what had happened and the reason we were starting to lose that business is we actually started to get a lot of competitors. They were well-funded competitors and they were selling products below cost basically to eat at our margin. They were purposely targeting us to try to make operating our business not fun by, by taking our profit margin away. <laughs> yeah, and they would play the war of attrition because they were well-funded. Well it was one company, and the same company that was doing it to us was also doing it to Dr. Fosters and Smith. Our two million was probably about you know, probably 10 to 12 million off their bottom line. So it was, it was a love-love relationship. Like when we sold this company to Dr. Fosters and Smith, we both did it being happy that we were not going to let that company who was, you know, eating at our margins kill us enemy of my enemy is my friend right yes <laughs> yes we instantly had a friendship when i approached dr fosters and smith and I, you know how i did it was i basically sent them a letter to i sent a letter to the owner and i thought what the hell it's worth a shot right and two weeks later he called me and they're actually owned by four people so one of the doctors called me and, and was like hey we're really interested in this why don't we move forward and see if we can find something that that works so did you know they were eating away at their margins too or no i mean i i found that out later but i assumed assumed so because they weren't only doing it in our category they were also doing it in the dog category the cat category and the equine category is this company still around it is it is i have been out of the business i've been out of pet supply since 2007 basically they had bought the name ferret.com so that was a real big hit they bought the name dog.com they're still around so, so they were were they vc funded or like where did they get all this money because in 2005 it was after the dot com my belief was that they were and i don't know for a fact that it was just family money. The rumor had always been that the guy who, who did this, 
you know, he was a doctor and the rumor had been that his father had a lot of money and was funding the business. Yeah. So we're talking like a couple hundred, probably like 200 million plus in like family wealth or something. Probably something like that. Maybe even more. I mean, if they can just lose money by cutting people out. Yeah. And their margins were so thin. Like, I mean, we knew because at the time we were like, you know, we'd go back to the manufacturers and be like, how are they doing this? And they're like, you know, you're actually paying less for the products than they are is what a lot of the manufacturers would tell us because we had such good volume and, and we had great pricing too because we were a skew, like we were a segment of larger companies with a, a niche product line. They loved the fact that somebody was selling as much product as we were in, in a niche. Everything happens for a reason, you know? And so when you just, when you wrote the letter to want to say, you know, I, I want to sell my business, did you just say that in the letter or how did you approach them kind of? Um, no, I, I wrote... You know, I wrote a, a, a really good letter. It was like two pages. I wrote about our history, how we how we started the company, where we are now, how our competition is eroding the margins. But, you know, basically, we're, we're at a level where we have to downsize our operation and um, we don't want to, <laughs> you know. So um, the, the best thing to do was to sell it. And so when they reached out, you know, what, what happened after that? Or what was the process to like actually figure out how to get this thing sold? In our industry, they were a class act, right? Everybody who had ever dealt with Dr. Foster's and Smith never had a bad thing to say about this company. Like that they treat their customers amazing. Their customer service is incredible. You know, that always filters down to the owners. It's like, you know, if the company runs that way, the CEO and the people who are running the company are good stand-up guys. I mean, it pretty much it pretty much has to come from those guys for it to go through the organization. Right, and, and that's the truth in most companies. I mean, if, you know, no matter how large the company is, you ever hear the saying, a fish stinks from the head? I don't know if you've ever heard that, but it's it's really true. If, if the entire company stinks, then you know if they treat their customers bad, that comes from the top down. So in this case, they were just wonderful people, and they flew out. We were in Northeast Pennsylvania. Um, they came from Wisconsin. <laughs> they were even more rural than us. <laughs> They flew out and spent a weekend with us and went to dinner and met our people and toured our company. And, and then they were like, well, let's think it over. And, you know, a couple of days passed and they were like, we want to move forward. They liked what they saw. You know, they came, they did their due diligence. There was a couple more due diligence times. Like they flew back a few times. It was it was kind of a fun sale because, you know, we weren't a hundred million or a billion dollar company selling to a $20 billion company. We didn't have bankers involved in this. And, you know, we had our lawyers and their lawyers and stuff, but it was, it didn't go into the level of like you were doing a banking sale. Um, just to have an idea of how much bigger they were than you guys, like relatively, you know, like say if you guys were like 10 million a year, how big were their operations, if you have a ballpark figure, like, like 100, 200, 300, or? Um, I don't think their their numbers are public because they're private, right? But I can I can tell you that, let's just say it, they're over 250 million and less than 500 million. And who knows where they are now, but I mean, very, very in that, at that time, that was a, you know, that, that's a big company. But you, you weren't even, you're not even that small either, but I guess the matching to the, I guess it was a good match, right? In terms of where you were at and where they were at too. So oh, perfect. Because basically, for us, what what they were acquiring was a ten million dollar segment into an existing catalog business. Because if they were, like you said, in the two fifty to five hundred range, buying like say a half a million year business doesn't really make sense either, right? It's almost like too small, in a way too. For, I guess like they would still have to nurture it up rather than where you guys were at. Just, you just kind of plugged in, right? If we had, yeah, I think if we had revenues like a half a million, they probably wouldn't have been interested because it didn't come with enough 
customer base. Nice. All right. And so, you know, you were talking about the due diligence process. You know, so so say someone wants to sell their store. You know, they found a potential buyer, but it's very just, you know, just the initial outreach. You know, when they come meet you, kind of what happens at that first meeting or, you know, what should someone expect to actually do? I would say it's being yourself, right? Because the whole purpose of the first meeting is they want to see if what you said to them in the the letter you sent them was true. What kind of person you are, because if they, you know, if they start to think that you're some kind of a sleazeball, um, they're probably not going to want to get involved with you, you know? So I think a lot of it is just personality and you're trying to see if, if you have a feeling of trust for the company you're getting involved with. And also, I guess some of it was like, like, does the owner share the same mindset, culture, kind of outlook too, right? In terms of definitely, if they're a good match, right? Right. Because I guess if a, if an owner of a business that's selling treats his company very differently than say the buyers i mean even after the integrated you know it'll be a huge hassle i guess yeah too, so. I, I definitely i and and that's true for larger companies for sure there was a time when before technology got better when we had to do a lot of things manually that we had had like 20 employees there and when we had sold we were down to about eight but if you're selling a company with 200 employees into a company that's got 2,000 employees, you know, there's a whole new culture that's going to have to be adapted to. Right, and so, you know, when you decide to sell the business, you know, obviously the buyer has a number and the seller has a number too, right? So how do you kind of figure out, come to the middle ground or like, how do you negotiate that end? When you sell a business, there's all these different ways to calculate value. But the real calculation is what you're worth to somebody else. I had numbers that I had in mind and, you know, they had basically said, well, you know, the, the, that's realistic. It's not what we want to pay, but let's, let's try to work at it. How we had ended up doing it was, and it's hard for me to remember exact figures now because it really has been a while ago, but we put a value on every single active customer we had. They knew what their cost to acquire a customer was, and they knew how many, we knew how many active purchasing customers we had, how we did this valuation. Because at the time we had sold, we were now like, marginally profitable. We used to make a lot of money with that business, but the time we sold, our margins had eroded down to like single digit profitability. So doing a multiple on profits was going to be not worth it. And doing a multiple on revenue wasn't going to be worth it. For us, it would have been, but it wouldn't have been for them. Well, that's how we valued our business. I, I would tend to say that's probably not the common way, but it worked good for both of us because we had so many active customers. So I think fundamentally, that's the equation you want to get right, right? It's the lifetime value has to be greater than your cost of acquisition. Right, and that was what they used. And they had, they actually did the model and came back to us and said, this is what we believe we want to pay based on what we think will work for our business. For us, it worked because we, you know, we were at a point where we were on a downward downward cycle. We could have downsized that business and kept it and made it profitable, but it wouldn't have been a fun business to operate. Especially when it came from a college bunch of college friends that you know. right right i mean it's it's kind of hard like it's it's even it's sort of like a culture even you start small you build it bigger it's fun it's fun it's fun and then it's not fun anymore and and that's kind of how i live my life right like if it's not fun anymore it's time to move on if, if it's not something you wake up in the morning every day and you, your heart's in it it's depressing so start something new you know that's what i did and the second company i i built was so much fun so I'm glad I did it. I mean, hadn't I done that, I would have just still been an e-commerce merchant selling ferret supplies, making probably three or $400,000 a year doing something I didn't enjoy. I think it's an important way to live life. It's going back to these uh, Dr. Foster and Smith. So if they're using lifetime value and cost of acquisition to really fund their you know, M&As, I mean, basically they're thinking very long-term then, huh, these guys. 
is the impression I'm getting. I would say so. When, when I actually was doing the sale process, they had come to my location maybe three times. The first time was to meet us. The second time they're like, okay, we want to look through your, your books. You know, we don't want to spend a lot of money doing this. We don't want to hire CPAs. Basically, they were like, I like you guys. If, if I send my accounting people and we go through all your numbers, is that acceptable to you? And I was like, you know, sure. If there was one thing that Scott and I did, it was like we ran a clean, good, solid set of books. We always used good software, you know what I mean? So um, they picked through everything and, you know, they spent a couple of days doing it. They couldn't find anything that they thought looked abnormal. So that was good enough for them. When I actually spent time at their location in Wisconsin, I was fascinated. I mean, what an amazing company they run. From the culture to the technology to the, I mean, I was, I was like blown away. So it was, it was nice to kind of let it go to them too, also it seems, right? It felt so good. It, it, there's nothing that would feel worse than building something that you put your heart and soul into and then selling it to somebody that you thought was a dirtbag. Or, or you like, you know, like you see all these, startups now they get sold to like google and then six months later they get killed right, right. But, i mean maybe right. by then they probably cashed out but still knowing that it can live on in another environment it's probably good thought and that, yeah and they looked at it with a real long-term perspective you know I, i'm fascinated too even it's you know now 2013 they bought it in 2007 they've now rebranded everything to their brand but they kept the ferret store brand for five years they still sell the same food we produced one of the people i work with here at 3d cart just purchased an order from their small animal department and i saw the box and i was looking through it and they still have a catalog like we used to have back then we were a cataloger too we actually put out a catalog every three months and they still print the catalogs so i was I was thrilled. Yeah, so catalogs still work these days? It's very old school. I'm a big believer in catalogs. Nowadays, I don't have the experience. I, I used to be a pretty big cataloger because, you know, we actually did put the catalog together and when we would drop a catalog, even when we had the internet, it would increase our business. I do believe in cataloging and I think it's going to return. Yeah, because I think online, there's so much noise now that no one's doing cataloging too, right? It almost It's counterintuitive in a sense that you go old school because it's online is too crowded now. Yeah, I think it's going to come back. I think the reason that um, cataloging sort of decreased was because it got very expensive to mail the catalogs. Like back when we were in it, um, you know, the post office had some third class bulk rate that was really cheap. As the postal service started to reorganize, they they basically rose up the prices on the junk mail. So then it became cost prohibitive. You know, now it's not actually cheap to market your business online. So I think the catalog is really starting to look like a, a better option. I mean, and if you can get someone to flip through your catalog for 10 minutes versus, you know, seeing your Facebook post for like 10 seconds, I mean, there's a different impact too, right? And, and here's the other thing too. Um, we went through, you know, we didn't have iPads back in the in the catalog day. And even with an iPad, right, there's something to be said that when you get a catalog in the mail, that if it's something that interests you, you're probably going to look through it at a time when you really don't have anything else to do. So catalogs are great bathroom material. And, and what they really do is they drive you online to make the purchase. Yeah, and I noticed uh, Dr. Forster and Smith, they still offer free catalogs on their website now. Like you can put your address, your state, and as it's really, it's just a fundamental direct mail type of thing too, right? I mean, well, here's the thing. They were they were a catalog company in the 80s. Well, there was no internet. Their, their foundation of a business was a catalog company. The internet for them really just became a way for their customer base to order easier, you know? And that was, that was what the internet was for us too. I mean, we pretty much started online, but we printed catalogs. And the internet was really a place where people could place an order sim more simple, simply. You know, now if you're starting a business, I mean, how do you get exposure? It's social media and, and AdWords and Bing ads.
and they're not cheap. I mean, or you can just invest the time and money, you know, find the forums, build your profile there. But I mean, you know, it's time, energy, or money, right? It's just a combination of these three too. So, but it's interesting that, you know, for them, you know, they basically stuck with what they knew, right? If they're still doing cataloging and stuff, and it's just, they've been fine all these years too. And they've probably even gotten bigger, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It was kind of fun too, throughout our, our life cycle. We had, you know, pets.com. Do you remember them? They had the sock puppet. You know, we were scared to death. They, I want to say they came around 2001-ish or, I, you know, I'm just guessing based on how old I am now and when I think it was because I don't remember the dates. But um, when they came online, we were like, oh, this is going to kill us. What it actually did was it like it practically doubled our business because they didn't sell very well in our segment, but they were bringing all these people online to look for pet supplies. You know, so sometimes the things you think that are going to be the worst actually turn out to, to benefit you. <laughs> you can't really say it's karma, but it's kind of like things just happen in a weird way too. So, and so, how did you decide to go? You know, after you sold this, what did you what did you do after? It was kind of an easy transition because I started Solid Cactus in 2000, 2001. So right around, right around 2001. We sold this in 2007. So Scott and I being business partners for our entire lives, he went on to continue to run the ferret store. And I started Solid Cactus. It was a hybrid. Solid Cactus was a hybrid because we had the benefits of having a previous company that was still operating. You know, a lot of times when you start a business, infrastructure costs are a problem, but for us it wasn't because we already had an existing office and existing business. So when we started Solid Actus, we operated it within the Ferret Store's infrastructure. Oh, so you guys just changed the sign on the door basically and then it started that way, then it moved across the street, then it moved into the downtown. As it got larger, it broke off completely. After we sold the ferret store, I mean, Scott wrapped it up and moved over to Solid Cactus. <laughs> so we were back together again. And then then together, we built that up really big. If you're in a, a business partnership with somebody who you really click with, you can do amazing things. It's a lot of times more difficult to do it alone. But at the same time, a partnership with somebody who's not a good partner is, is a problem. And so I saw I'm on the Solid Cactus website. So you sold this in 2009. And, you know, was the timing kind of around 2009 special or, you know? Now, that was a whole different sale because this company was much larger <laughs> and, and we sold it to a publicly traded company. So that one we spent, I want to say we spent almost a year negotiating. It, it was tiring and exhausting to me. It wasn't fun like the Fosters and Smith sale. Now, at the end of the day, I was happy to who I sold it to, and I really liked the people from Web.com. But this was a larger company with a corporate structure that was public. So they had to, they had certain things they needed to do because they were public also, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, and it was, it was exhausting. It was a lot of reporting, a, a, you know, a lot of being crawled through financials, a lot of different people doing it. So I, I don't want to even compare that one. At the end of the day, it turned out to be a real positive thing. I see. And so just to get a perspective, how did... Solid Cactus plug into the business of web.com, just kind of like um, on a very top-down level. Web.com does so many different things. How it really plugged in was we had a really good internet marketing department, and we also had a customer service call center because as we grew the Ferret Store, we knew that one of the biggest challenges an e-commerce merchant has is when they start to get bigger but they're still not big enough to self-employ, they can't handle their customer service. Web.com really loved that model. They thought, this is great. We have a, you know, our business is based around entrepreneurs and small businesses. So a call center is a great product to have because as businesses grow larger, having somebody answer your phones is, 
is a, a real positive. We also had a really good, solid search marketing department that did AdWords and search engine marketing and social media. And that too was a great product that they could sell to their customer base. The other thing that they liked about us was we had a high-end web development team that didn't do template designs. They actually did custom web work. And that's hard to build in a corporate structure. Yeah, because you need to, it's, yeah, to start from the ground up to find like the right people is just, yeah. I actually, and, and you know, I had spent two years at web.com as VP of e-commerce. And like if, looking back, I don't know how I would have started that within a corporate structure. It's, it's not that easy. So just because of the creativity necessary and by the time you build up a demand, you know, it's just easier to acquire a piece like that than it is to build it from scratch. Yeah, and I think just getting like the management buy-in and the all the approvals and just like the budgets, it's just like, yeah, I just better off just buy someone that, that already has it. Yeah, I almost equate that to like getting bought by a public company is like trying to pass a law in Congress. You know, it's about the same structure, right? Somebody introduces the bill <laughs> you know, then they get co-sponsorship on it, then they present it, and then they've got to get a whole other, now the Senate passes it, and now the House has to approve it. <laughs> I mean, that's that process was like, selling to a private company was phenomenal. It was like, basically, there's four owners, and they all wanted it. So, <laughs> it, it's a lot better. But And did you find the process of selling the Ferret store, you know, it helped you sell to web.com? Um, I think it had no bearing whatsoever. Just because the size was different and the players are different too, right? Yeah. Um, web.com was, you know, even though they host e-commerce and they, they build e-commerce for small business, they're not an e-commerce merchant. All right. And so let's move on to where you are now. So you're at 3D Cart now as the chief marketing officer. And so how did you, you know, end up here as a software company? You know, how it really ended up was, I, I love this product. I was aware of 3D Cart back when, even when I worked at web.com and I was fascinated by how awesome the product is, you know, it wasn't the market leader. It's kind of figured into the top three, like in shopping cart software. They did good marketing and they had a really good product, but they were smaller. Basically, even when I was at web.com, I had a, a home in Florida. So I loved Florida so much more than Pennsylvania. When the sale was all done and everything, you know, finally evened out, I was like, I want to live in like the Fort Lauderdale, Miami area, were better to work than like a software company I adore in a place where I want to live. So I had reached out to the owner of this uh, of 3D Card. His name is Gonzalo. And I had sent him a letter. So these letters work really well for me. <laughs> so I, I sent him a type letter and I said, I want to live in Florida full time in my Florida home. And I, I really love your company. We met and had some great conversations and that's how I ended up working at 3D Cart. And 3D Cart is fun, honestly. It's just a great piece of software with an awesome team. I love coming to work every day here. We, I just work with the coolest people. And it's all about being happy. That's what I think life is all about, right? You're not here forever. And I think you can draw a lot of your experiences from being a store owner too, right? Just kind of oh, yeah. the process they go through too. So. It helps for sure. I mean, trying to market a software product, it, it, it helps when you know how your customers think and the problems that they have. Okay, let's move into some little like strategy stuff for store owners. Because obviously, you know, you have a lot of experience and a lot of our listeners, maybe they're they're new or just starting out. So, you know, kind of when you overlook, like, say, you know, 18,000, 20,000 stores at 3D Car, you know, what are some of like the big three things you see the successful store owners do that are really killing it, that they do right? Um, we do have a lot of customers that are really successful. And I want to say that the, the, the niche play is still the, the real winner. I, I see a lot of niche stores cranking some revenue. They sell things that are just different, that 
I wouldn't know where to purchase anywhere but online. And so what about the stores that don't sell well? Like, I mean, what, what are they trying to sell? They just sell like generic stuff or like... Well, here's the thing, right? Let's t- take a look quick at, at the, the model of the search engine, right? Some things that are not going to work very well is if you're taking a low dollar value project with a very low margin, you'll probably never be able to profitably sell that with PPC. Good example is pet supplies, actually. Like if you're selling dog biscuits or even ferret toys at this point in time, that was one thing that did make the ferret store a harder a harder model as time went on was that we started our customer acquisition was based on trade shows and fans then we moved into things like adwords and go to which became yahoo which eventually died but when you sell something that's five dollars and you purchase it for two and you have a three dollar margin you can't pay 50 cents or a dollar per click like it'll quickly suck money out of you i want to say the merchants that that i see that are least successful are the ones that choose low value low dollar value products in a drop ship model that copy manufacturer and product and titles from the manufacturer and throw them on a website so basically you're adding no value basically right right if you have no if you add no value you can't sell anything And, you know, a lot of people who start online, actually, I want to say a lot of merchants who are successful start no value. And that's like their training class. And then when they actually master, they built something that's really great and nobody wants to shop on it. Then they get the bright idea like, wow, you know, if I'd actually sell this product, maybe I could I could make it. And then they build like a whole new store with a whole new identity. (laughs) So they spend, yeah, they spend a year practicing and then now they're like actually ready to go out and build something that's going to work. And it's not to say like a dropship model can't work. I mean, it, it could work. I think you just have to have the right supplier with the right thing. But the, again, the problem with dropshipping is a mass market dropshipper is also offering the same products to hundreds of thousands of people for dropshipping. One of the things I would recommend is if there's something you really enjoy doing, a product you would really want to sell, and it's not a mass market product, there's nothing that says that a small niche niche product or product manufacturer wouldn't drop ship for you. Again, I go back to this writing letters thing. <laughs> but, you know, if you could always, and that was really popular in the pet industry. There were a lot of maybe five person, 10 person companies that made like sporting dog things, chew toys, things that you couldn't buy mass market. And if you would approach them and ask them to sell their product, you know, they, a lot of times the smaller manufacturers are really restrictive, but if they actually like you as a person, they may let you sell it. So there, there's there's opportunity out there, but I think the, the most frustrating thing I see being at the other end, like as a, the software provider, is how many people just think they can get rich tomorrow and how impatient they are with thinking that like, you know, building a website is just like a free gift for revenue. I mean, it's not like that. Like if you, if you build a store in a brick and mortar, you know, shopping plaza, there's a lot of effort that goes into actually opening that store. And it's the same thing online is this isn't something that, you know, of course, there's going to be a handful of people that spent a hundred dollars and made millions, but you could probably count them on one hand. And so can you tell out of 3D Cards customers, like what percentage people are running dropship stores versus making their own products or? I don't actually, that's a really good question. I actually don't have a way to tell. Um, there are people here that could, but it doesn't affect me. So I've, I, I don't have a way to report on it. Um, based on what I, I run into, I want to say that a good portion, probably probably more than half, are trying the dropship model. I want to say that the people who are, seem to be more successful don't dropship. They either manufacture themselves or, or ship the product themselves. But it's not to say you can't be successful dropshipping, but you really have to get the right arrangement. But I think in the end, if you're manufacturing yourself, the closer you are, the better your margins. And then that kind of 
ties into your advertising budget where you can then go pay-per-click and then spend more on your marketing. You make more mistakes too also. Oh, for sure. The biggest mistake, I could basically say this with confidence to any user, or any listener, right? If you think you're going to take a product that's a complete commodity, take a, a file from the manufacturer, complete with the manufacturer product descriptions, complete with the manufacturer photos, and upload it onto a website, you're not going to sell anything. You have to have a unique presence. There has to be something that you bring of value. And I've always had a hard time understanding people's thought process because to me, that's almost a common sense. You know, I'm a consumer. Even a store owner is a consumer. A consumer shops somewhere that they find value. So just throwing something on the web, you know, you're a needle in a haystack. So you really have to work hard at creating an identity. And I do think that's where, you know, if you ask a lot of merchants, what they think about social media, they'll say, oh, it doesn't generate sales. It doesn't generate immediate sales. <laughs> it really doesn't. But you can use social media to your advantage to build a fan base. And when you have a fan base, you have the opportunity to get people interested in things. So it's a very important piece of where even the search engines are going today. You know, social cues, like, you know, how interesting are these products to people and how much value do they find in them? I think it really falls down to like, you know, are you having a producer mindset or a consumer, right? And I think when you just do that, you're go you're going in as a producer, but you're thinking still like a consumer. And it's like, what am I going to get? I'm just going to do this, and I'm going to make sales by just doing something easy. Whereas, if you really had a producer mindset, you would think like, well, how can I add value besides doing this? But even think as a consumer, even if you think as a consumer, like, why would I shop here? Yeah. And as a producer, your your question, your job is to create that why. Right, and, and there's you know, there's lots of different value propositions, you know, some of it could be convenience or the ability to locate things that you can't find anywhere else. I, I want to say that when you try to go in with the model of trying to sell the product at the lowest possible price, that that does not scale. So you might actually be, be able to build a small business being a price whore, um, but then when your business gets bigger and you have to add technology to your business and and, and try to keep it lean, it gets very hard to maintain those margins because you have nothing to work with in the beginning. So right, right. In the beginning, it's just you. <laughs> when you have to start adding labor to it, it's a whole different story. I have a, a saying, and I, I don't know if this is mine or somebody else's, but if you lose a dollar a million times, you've lost a million dollars. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. All right, and so Joe, you know, just to wrap things up, uh, can you give us some kind of final words of wisdom? I know you talked about niche selection. Uh, you know, not uh, trying to be the cheapest uh, seller online. I mean, is there anything else that we should part with before we go? I, I want to say, if you if you have an e-commerce business and it starts to grow, um, don't ever grow it at a loss. Like if you can't make money on it from the very beginning, it's different if it's different if you're banking funded or something, and you know you're gonna create a game changer for the industry, and someone's gonna come and purchase you later. <laughs> You know, but if if you're starting it as a hobby or something that you just like to do, it's not worth losing money to build something that isn't going to make money. I do see it a lot in e-commerce. There's there's a lot of times people just to get the sale will lose money to get the sale because they think that that customer is going to come back and purchase again and again and again. And the customer will only do that if you build value. If the only value you build is the lowest price on something the consumer is not going to return unless it's the lowest price. So just remember about the user base that you're acquiring. You know, when, when we created the ferret store, we built a user base of people who were passionate about an animal. It wasn't people who were passionate about the lowest price on something. Our customers came to us because we kept bringing out new products. We kept sourcing new things for ferrets. We even started manufacturing our own products 
towards the end. That's how we built a user base. If you're trying to build a consumer base off of having the lowest price, you're going to have a consumer base of people who want the lowest price. And that's not very valuable. All right. So the takeaway is to, you know, at least make money on day one or at least kind of very soon, as soon as possible. right? And don't go in thinking... You're gonna lose money just to get it, make it back later too. Right, and that's true with bootstrapping. I mean, if you're gonna, if you're starting without funding and you're gonna bootstrap a business, and and we started the ferret store bootstrapping, you know, so every sale we made, every profit we made, we took that profit and we reinvested it. If you're selling below cost, all you're doing is taking your existing resources and dumping it into something that's not gonna make money. All right. Thank you, Joe and listener for tuning into this episode. If you guys want to find out more and connect with Joe, you can find him on Twitter at Joe Palco, uh, J-O-E-P-A-L-K-O. And for everything we mentioned in this episode, it'll be on the website, buildmyonlinestore.com slash 62. And we'll see you guys next week. And Joe, thank you again for joining us. And if you haven't tried 3D Cart, try it today. To get more information about running an online store, visit our website at buildmyonlinestore.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Build My Online Store podcast.